What's Shaken Parkinson's podcast, where we explore information to learn about and to offer you a bi-weekly insight into the world of Parkinson's disease. Thanks for joining. Frank, how are you? Good. What's shaking with you today? Um, well, um, quite a bit, quite a bit. Just listened to um, Dan's interview. I found it very interesting. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be posting that uh, after we we uh, give a preview here. Right. Yeah. So that was very interesting. I mean, scientists are um, they're neat people, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's just very interesting on how you get to make money in the field. And uh, he went through that and um, went through quite a few other things. And um, I think our audience will really enjoy it. I do as well. I think um, even prospective college students or anybody going into the field where um, fighting for grants uh, is part of how they fund their, their research and their, their forward education uh, will find some of his experience and insight valuable for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So last week, last episode, um, you had mentioned, you know, struggling a little bit, a uh, bit of a down feeling after the initial boost that you got from the DBA. Yes, it's something I um, have mixed emotions about, but once you spoke about, brought it up, I'll talk about it. Um, I, uh, I think they're taking a step backwards, mm-hmm. and it's very disappointing. Um, I'm confident everything's going to be fine. You know, Dr. Sharon and, um, and everyone else at Jefferson have a great, great, um, great wealth of knowledge there. And, um, you know, I'm sure they will pinpoint what's going on with me, and um, I'm confident everything will be fine. Good. You have a follow-up session in two days, right? Yes. Yeah, I'll be there Tuesday morning, and um, hopefully, um, you know, what they're doing, they're, um, they're programming me. Mm-hmm. And with the program, and since I'm new at this, it's only the first time they're doing it, you know, I mean, it's going to be ups and downs. So sure. It's very experimental. you got sure. to tweak Learn this, do that. Learn your base level and, yeah. then, and then work from there. Exactly. So I got a base on me um, a month ago, and um, everything was going well for the past couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, um, just not feeling right. And um, actually, if I think about it now, as I'm talking to you, what happened, um, my doctor sort of tweaked some of my, um, some of my meds to help me because I called him and told him I'm not feeling well and I have two weddings to go to and I don't want to like, you know, fall apart at the wedding. Mm-hmm. I mean, Parkinson's people are known, they, they just are known for like just um, being crashers at a party, basically. I mean, uh, what we do is <laughs> we the just, wrong way. <laughs> yeah, we just crash a party the wrong way. Exactly. So, I mean, we, um, well, the reality of it is you, you we just, we don't know how we're going to feel from, from day to day, let alone minute to minute. Sure. And, um, you know, then you take your meds and the whole thing kicks in and then you're, you're, you're in deep doo-doo sometimes. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, to consolidate, consolidate here, I, um, he helped me. I got through the weddings. I did great. You know, that was very important. Um, but then all of a sudden I noticed myself tripping and not the good tripping, <laughs> but I was falling down. And I fell about five, six times, and um, it hurt. Um, and I just not lifting my legs high enough. I'm just not doing some things, and um, it's a combination of balance, and um, I guess um, I guess uh, thinking about it. Sure. 
and uh, and knowing this is something I have to take care of now because I didn't, you know, before everyone else it just comes natural. Mm -hmm. So um, so I'm going to Jefferson this 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 um, week, and they're going to take care of it. I'm confident it's going to get done. It's just um, you know, I got the best doctors you know around doing the doing the working with me. So everything get done, but it's just um, very disappointing. Frustrating. Frustrating. And my, my wife and my family are disappointed and frustrated. Yeah, especially my wife. She's very frustrated. She just, um, she sees me going backwards and she's like, this is the way it's going to be. And I'm like, no, it's not going to be this way. You know, it's trial and error. And it could take six months, they told me. And they were very upfront and told mm -hmm. me it would take six weeks, I mean, six months, how. And, um, you know, could. And um, if I got to use up all that time, I will. I mean, I'm determined to get this going and getting back to a little bit more of how, how it used to be. You had um, last week mentioned a Robin Williams movie where he was taking drugs and then they stopped him from taking them and, and I yes. forget the correlation. Was the movie Awakenings? Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. And that was El Dopa that he was taking. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, I remember him in his pajamas and, um, you know, and, he, and he, he's going, he's going back to like Basically, yeah, De Niro, I believe, was the psychiatrist. Correct, yeah. correct. De Niro was it. Yeah. You know, then it shows um, him um, coming on and being like this great super brain, which he right. was. And then he gets off the meds again because it was only you're only had on it for a short time, and mm -hmm. then he's he goes back to being like a a wilted flower of what he used to be. Sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah, good movie. Yeah, yeah, and that gets back again to Dan in the today's episode where the studying uh, aspect of it and the research to understand what people are going through in order to help them and prescribe things correctly. Um, you mentioned grants. Uh, one of the things that he's going to be referring to uh, several times within there is the challenges of continuing research and getting the approval and, and under having people who make those decisions understanding the value that, that he can bring and, and the progress that he's seen. And then compare that to, say, Carl Wittig, um, where there's an income stream from a product that has gone through this process already for research. Absolutely. Carl, Carl was a, um, he, he's with a great, he's with Abbott Laboratories, mm -hmm. over 100 years old, and um, they're doing a great job out there with all kinds of things besides just Parkinson's. Sure. Now, but they don't, they rely more on, as Abbott being a large multi national corporation right. um, has some of that uh, that revenue stream to invest in and they're already seeing the um, the income uh, as a result of that um, through procedures yes. through billing insurance companies Correct. through billing hospitals Correct. whereas you know, Dan's study is more yeah, uh, help me research this yeah, help me get there. I can get to yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan wants to get there yeah. Carl's company's there yeah. they're just trying to build exactly yeah um, so, so again, we'll review that whole process of grants in the middle with Dan. Um, yes. It's uh, kind of pulls the curtain on how um, the uh, the revenue uh, it, uh, the reviews are performed or approved. Well, it's all about the the old buck, you know. Yeah, yeah. And in his case, uh, 
a bro much broader perspective than what we're looking at in just Parkinson's, although he does mention some of the benefits yes. for Parkinson's. Is this is more specifically addiction uh, treatment and addiction studying and, yeah. uh, disorders. Yeah, I found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different side of, of the problem, and um, it was interesting how the, um, Dan was explaining it to us. And um, it's, um, it's needed out there. All these studies with these... Um, it was interesting how, um, you know, you're studying a, um, a an addict. I was going to say former addict, but once you're an addict, you're an addict. True. And Dan will talk about that voice inside your head that drives addiction, helps fuel addiction, the, uh, you know, the angel and, and devil on the opposing shoulders, as they say. Do it, do it, take it, take it, you want it, you want it. <laughs> like, no, no, cannot do, no, I got to be good. No, you'll be in work tomorrow, you'll just be a little late. I got to be on time, you know, and yeah. um, it's just, um, it's interesting how they're doing a the study. I mean, there's an actual real effect, you know, to do what you think is just a natural occurring thing. You know, um, do I do, do this? You know, do I get high? Do I do take this drug right. now? Or do I, you know, not access and do I do this now or do or should I not? And um, there's all these things going on in his brain. Sure. Yeah. That, that constant battle for control. Yes. And, yeah. All right, so without further ado, let's listen to Dan McCauley. Yeah, bring it on. So we are speaking with Dan McCauley. Uh, yes. Dan is a uh, grad student at the Medical University of South Carolina, uh, going for a PhD in neurology. Uh, as with uh, many of our guests, he will have some areas of expertise on uh, neurosciences and, and Parkinson's, but not specifically Parkinson's also, as we'll have in some cases. Um, so, Dan, uh, you uh, you just started uh, mentioning how long you've been in this program when you, you're expecting it to uh, finish. Uh, can you give us an understanding of why you chose this area? Yeah, um, I got started in neuroscience kind of by accident. Um, I, I took a gen ed course my freshman year of college um, and knew that I was interested in, in science generally. Um, but I got really interested in neuroscience just from a course that I took. Um, and then later on in college, I was working for um, my dad's small business at the time. I was working in the warehouse, just like moving boxes around. Um, and at the time, most of the people who were hired there were recovering from substance use disorders. Um, and so it really just opened my eyes a lot to uh, what that can look like and what recovery can look like and what people who have substance use disorders can look like. I think for a long time, I thought it was kind of, you know, what the media might make it out to be or, or where the stigma comes from. Um, and so it really opened my eyes and I thought this is a field of research that I'm interested in and I liked this neuroscience course. So I really just dove into neuroscience and reaching, uh, researching substance use and alcohol use in particular after that. Interesting. And uh, what kind of career plan, uh, plan, plan path um, are you considering at this stage? Yeah, so I'll graduate in about, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll graduate in about 10 months um, or 11 months. And so my next stage is what's called, um, uh, we call it a postdoc, that stands for like postdoctoral research. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll continue research for another two or three years, um, possibly longer. Or it could go up to five or six years. Uh, but my goal ultimately is to, is to run my own lab. 
so have grad students and postdocs and, and undergrads working under me all kind of unified on some large scale research project that we're all undertaking. Interesting. And, and along the lines of, of drug abuse and, and addiction. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm interested in right now. Um, I think with a lot of the tools that we use and a lot of the, the knowledge that we get from neuroscience, um, I think as your career goes on, you start to expand into other fields and realize that this tool might be useful for substance use, but also for stroke recovery or something, for instance. So it's really like vibrant career and that you get to do a lot of different things as you move on. Great. It sounds exciting. I mean, do you do you get government funding? You work for projects for the government, or you just go um, to anyone who's sort of um, looking for what your your abilities are? Yeah. Um, so most of it is government funded. Um, yeah. The National Institute of Health or the NIH um, is probably the largest system that we apply for really competitive grants um, to basically pursue what we're interested in. Um, there are though, or there's this growing kind of population of, of independent funders and, and philanthropists though that are starting to put a little bit more time and energy into research. Um, and so that's another opportunity to fund what we do as yeah, well. Yeah, it's an opportunity for you, definitely. Definitely, yeah. that's exciting. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, possibly just because um, the media is everywhere and um, I, I guess there's, and we've had the pandemic this year and everything well last year and everything so maybe that's a reason why it's sort of more out in the open and um individuals are putting their money forward and things like that yeah i would i would definitely say that the role of of scientists is a lot more in the spotlight this past year and, and hopefully it will stay that way moving forward um just because of the pandemic and and yeah. how much things have to learn and think about science basically Sure. Um, so uh, can you tell us a little about uh, some of your current studies, types of testing, and, and various results that you've had with these? Yeah, so um, my lab broadly um, works on clinical trials for substance use and alcohol use disorders. Uh, and we take kind of a non-conventional approach in that um, rather than doing like a pharmacology or drug study, for instance, uh, we use what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a form of non-invasive brain stimulation. And so we use this uh, as a tool to manipulate the regions and circuits within your brain that we think are um, improperly acting during alcohol and substance use disorder. So we might have a brain region that's too excited when you see an image of alcohol or a brain region that's not excited enough. Um, when you see alcohol. And so we apply this tool called TMS to those brain regions and try to kind of harmonize their um, activity back to normal. Uh, and what we've been finding broadly is that um, it seems to be working. We're very much in the early stages. My dissertation is largely focusing on the alcohol use disorder population. And so <clears throat> we found in what will hopefully be a soon published study. We're working on the paper right now. Uh, we found that the people who got um, our treatment ended up faring a little bit better, uh, actually a lot better than the people who did not receive our treatment. 
um, they were a little bit less likely to relapse. They were much less likely to return to um, binge drinking after the treatment, which is a really important metric. And we also saw that the areas and circuits in the brain that we were hoping to target and change did in fact change in the ways that we expected them to. Interesting. So yeah. how uh, will be undertaking uh, a, uh, a a procedure, uh, you know, major surgery in, in another month where he's actually going to have uh, holes drilled into his head and, and wires connected. Um, your process is uh, obviously much less invasive. And, and again, you know, for different purposes, uh, but how uh, is the magnetic, um, uh, magnetic yeah. force uh, applied and, and how is it uh, received within the brain? Yeah, so um, the device that we use to deliver TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation is probably about the size of both your fists if you put them next to each other. Um, so it's not very large. Um, and what we do is we just place that device over top of your scalp, uh, basically over top of the brain region that we're hoping to target. So the first thing is just figuring out where it is to put the device and, and how to angle it right and, and to do all that. Um, and so the way that it works is within that um, device that's the size of your fist, there are coils of wire. Um, and uh, when we pass electrical current through those coils of wire, um, one of the very kind of earliest principles of, of physics from like the 1860s and, and Maxwell's equations and Faraday's laws and, and all those things that probably trigger some amount of PTSD for anyone who's taken an advanced physics course. <laughs> but when we pass energy through those coils of wires, what we do is we produce magnetic fields and we produce electric fields. Uh, so those always go together, um, they always work together. And so we send energy through these coils and that energy gets emitted through, to, through the device um, and onto your scalp and into your brain. So this energy, not only um, can we use it to you know, target a specific place on your head because they're these electromagnetic waves, they're not interrupted by your skull or your scalp, they can pass cleanly through to reach your brain. Um, and of course we know from uh, you know, decades, if not centuries of neuroscience research that the cells in your brain communicate electrically or electrochemically. And so when we stimulate them with these electromagnetic waves coming from our device, we're changing the way that cells talk to each other um, within a circuit and talk to their, their neighbors that are nearby. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so in brain-based treatment, um, you had, uh, when we talked uh, previously, you had mentioned um, a control circuit and a craving circuit. Uh, within the brain and two different areas that you can direct your um, your treatment toward and your stimulation yeah. toward. Yeah, so that, that's that's kind of the working idea, although it seems to be expanding almost every day with more thought being put into, you know, third and fourth different circuits that we haven't been looking at before. But the general idea is that within the brain, there are two kind of opposing circuits or opposing drives. Um, and we and we think about these circuits or we use these circuits every day. So the first circuit um, we call the executive control circuit, which helps us to kind of plan and manage ourselves 
Um, and if we see something like alcohol at the bar, that circuit would light up when we're thinking something along the lines of, um, I have work tomorrow and so I'm not gonna have another drink. Uh, and so we think that in alcohol use disorder, that circuit might not be as strong as it should be. Um, we think that you know folks might have a little bit of trouble not choosing to have the drink. Uh, and the alternative circuit, um, we call the craving circuit, might light up when we see that alcohol on the bar and we think, oh, that looks great. I'll have one more, you know, what's one more or what's two more or what's one more shot or, or what have you. Um, and so again, we think in alcohol use disorder that perhaps that circuit is overactive. And so when these two circuits um, have a basically opposing forces, one is saying, don't do it and one is saying, do it, uh, what ends up happening is the imbalance of craving or wanting alcohol wins out over the executive control of saying, I'm not going to have this drink. Sure, and then of course, with an addiction, you know, one will become multiple, uh, just yeah. by nature of that. <clears throat> yeah, and one thing I, I always mention too is that these opposing circuits are not uh, only existent in alcohol use disorder. We use them every day, right? When we are at, you know, like the 7-Eleven, and we, I mean, for me, at least when I see like the donuts in the, in the thing, right? Both of those circuits are going off when one is saying, get the donut, and the other is saying, that's a lot of calories, so it's a 7-Eleven donut. <laughs> <laughs> and it was National Donut Day earlier this week yeah, as well. exactly. So, um, it, I just need to point out that everybody has those circuits, and we're constantly using them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a little devil on the other guy standing on that shoulder saying, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how we describe it to the people who come into our studies. It's, you know, it sounds cartoony, but, you know, there are a lot it's of... It's analogy because it, it's visual. People could see that. Yeah, yeah right. true. Yeah. Not to plug my own songwriting, but I, I've written one once about addiction called uh, Without the Power to Change. And this, mm -hmm. you know, addresses the power uh, within each individual and, and how to... Um, create that power and override the other urge yeah so, so we yeah. wish you you know best of luck with this are you working on this with the team you mentioned how many people and and do they each have different roles or is it kind of just creative thinking yeah um that's a great question so uh my boss her name is um dr colleen hanlon she's at uh interestingly she's at wake forest uh she just took a new position and we're able to still work together, even though I'm in South Carolina and she's in North Carolina, um, of course, via Zoom and, and all those things. Um, but within our whole team, so she's kind of building this really big center at the university, we probably have about, um, maybe about eight or nine of us now huh. total. Um, there's about three graduate students, uh, one postdoc, which is the step right above a graduate student. Uh, and then in our lab, we also have a lot of people, uh, we call them research coordinators or project managers to do all the working with people. So much of our research just takes scheduling and actually delivering the treatment and talking with people um, and figuring out all those things. So there's probably about nine of us working on, on different projects. Uh, we study a lot of different things and it feels like it's constantly expanding. So I focus mainly on alcohol use disorder, um, but a colleague of mine in the lab focuses mainly on cocaine use. 
Uh, we're actually exploring TMS as a possible treatment for chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, the rationale there is that if we can reduce pain in people who suffer from chronic pain, then maybe we can help them either never start using opiates or wean off of their opiates. Um, and yeah, those are, the, those are really the major research undertakings um, in the lab right now. In the past, we've explored things like stroke and stroke recovery. Um, we actually formerly had a graduate student who um, moved on from the lab who studied mainly applying our treatment for Parkinson's disorder. Um, and I think that's about everything that I've seen in the lab so far. So there's a lot of creative thinking, a lot of exploration um, and different things we get to put our hands into. The exploration seems like it would be a fun part of it to just sort of see what's needed. I guess look over um, things from the government to see what they're looking for and, and private industry and just sort of like, you know, um, instead of just shooting an arrow at the, at the, at the wall, you know, you can make it concise and um, find out, you know, what's what's needed out there, obviously, and what you can uh, match and um, both basically have a chance to um, excel at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and often, you know, the big limiting factor in, in us exploring more science and research is, is applying for those government grants and, and really making a compelling argument that this should be studied or this treatment that we're using um, is really promising for for X disorder or or Y issue. Now, now how did, what's the approval process like um, when when you're that fortunate? Yeah, you, know, you you submitted your plan and all that. I mean, how long does it take? Um, I guess it's it's different um, lengths with different projects and different um, facilities yeah. uh, you're sending to. But um, how can you explain a little bit about that to us? Yeah. So um, the system is is like most government systems, very complicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what I can certainly tell you is that, so I personally am funded by a government grant uh, that is essentially uh, exists for graduate students. Uh, so it covers my tuition, it pays you know, a stipend, it, it gives me a little bit of money to travel for conferences and things like that. But grants exist at all different levels of your career. So as I apply for my next stage as a, as a postdoctoral researcher, and as I want to someday run my own lab, uh, progressively the grants become longer. I have to have more evidence to support them. Sure. Uh, and they become more competitive. So the government takes an even you know, finer approach to uh, reviewing the application and seeing is this really promising or is the data not there yet? Uh -huh. So for my particular grant, I applied for essentially the graduate student level of the grant. Um, and the process is lengthy. Uh, in order to get started, there's a ton of uh, writing that you have to do. So you have to write out what you're planning on doing, why you think that it's a good idea, what preliminary evidence you have to support it. So I think in total, the document that I finally submitted with all the, the bits and pieces was somewhere around 70 or 80 pages. Wow. Um, so you write a ton, basically, and you really have to be an expert in the, the literature on what you're wanting to do. Um, and then you submit this document, and essentially it goes to a whole team of scientists um, at what's called the National Institute of Health or the NIH. 
Um, and anywhere from probably like 10 to 20 scientists will get together for uh, a whole week, sometimes two weeks, and they'll have a whole stack of applications. They'll have applications from like 100 or 200 students just like me who all have different ideas and different thoughts. Um, and one person will be assigned to that application. They'll read it all the way through. Uh, and then they'll argue to their colleagues, essentially at this meeting, if they think it's worthy of funding, they'll argue for that. If they think it's not worthy of funding, then they'll argue why it's not worthy of funding. Uh, and then everyone at that meeting will come together and they'll score us on different criteria. Um, so like my promise as a researcher, the promise of my projects, the impact that it could have. Um, and then all that to say that I get a score and your score essentially is the biggest factor in determining if you get funding or if you get money. And so that score comes back probably four or five months after submitting the application. And if you're very lucky and if you've gotten a good score, um, the government will essentially say anything above a score of X will fund. And if you're above that line, then you get the money uh, and that can take another uh, four or five months to come in once you've kind of cleared all the paperwork and processes. Okay. Uh, but more commonly, you'll get a score that's below the number that's required. Um, a big thing in science is, is kind of getting denied the first time and, and picking yourself up and trying again. <laughs> right. And so when that happens, you'll get a, a score that maybe you didn't want, and you'll also get a long review of what you could improve on, what you should do before your next application. And essentially you'll take that 70, 80 page document that you started with and you'll do substantial edits to it. You'll add pages, you'll remove pages and reapply. And that can take, you know, another six months. So all things considered, this can take up to a year, a year and a half, just to kind of get your project funded and started. Now under your, under your um, organization, do you have specific people who, who do the writing for, for this, um, other people who do the research. Um, how does that work? If you could fill us in a little bit on that, because it, it's, it's fascinating, the whole thing. I mean, I never thought about any of this. Yeah. Um, so for my particular grant process, um, I, would, I would never say that it was just me, right? Of course, I, I had support from my boss and, and my colleagues and my department and everything like that. Um, but it's you know largely the person applying for the grant who writes the whole thing we're responsible for figuring out all the the rules in writing the documents so what the format needs to be what pages need to be where what i need to cover or not cover in my writing uh so you know i write the grant i apply for it um, and then i'm also responsible for running the studies that come out of the grant so performing mm -hmm. all the experiments uh meeting with um research participants running those experiments, but then also once I've met with the people who come in for our studies, we collect a ton of data. We also collect images of their brains from the MRI. And so I'm also responsible for working with all that data um, once the bird has been is left and putting that all together and really looking closely at is the study working or not working. Fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Uh, to connect political connections uh, factor into this, uh, you know, there there's always um, congressional uh, influence um, to to either 
advance or or hold back on funding for um, medical programs and scientific programs. Uh, do you ever have to, uh, or would, do you ever see yourself, you know, presenting to uh, to a congressional subcommittee at any point to uh, in in the future, or or has it already occurred within uh, your group or your fields? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I haven't had the opportunity to speak with many politicians one on one or or in a group setting yet. Um, but it's you know, of course, it's it's very political. Most of what we do, if not all of what we do, is dependent on how much funding the government decides to give us in a particular year. Um, and when I say the government, it really starts from the president's budget to start. And then, of course, the Senate and the House have to deliberate over what changes they will or won't make. Um, but increasingly, that's becoming part of the job of a, of a scientist is to, is to work more closely with politicians and to advocate for the things that we study. Um, <clears throat> so I haven't had many opportunities yet, um, but I'm actually really excited to kind of explore that field um, in a kind of separate after-school endeavor, if you will. Uh, myself and a friend of mine um, uh, started a, a group on campus um, basically for scientists who are interested in pursuing that angle of our job and in, in pursuing uh, politics and advocating for the changes that we think are scientifically supported. Uh, so we started this group, we applied for funding from an external source, um, this large kind of policy network called Research America. Um, and they funded us to start our group. And so we grew it from about two people to, I think today we have about 25 people. We had a number of events and things like that. Um, and we're really excited. They asked us to talk at a, a national meeting with their group um, to talk about what our group does and, and what we think, you know, the field should look like moving forward. So wow. hopefully I'll get that opportunity to kind of convince some politicians what I do is important. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, even the, you know, the, leaving bipartisanship aside, uh, or partisanship, I should say, you know, even those that will deny some scientific evaluations of, of climate change and um, other factors, can't help but see the value and the benefit that you're bringing to people's lives. And, and research has to move forward in order to have scientific advances. It, it, to me, it's common sense, but I'm unfortunately or unfortunately not in the political realm. And uh, I just write songs about it. Yeah. There's no global warming or anything. Everything's fine. Don't you Absolutely. worry. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe, maybe 10 years we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We, the, the expression I think that, uh, that your generation uh, has been using has been the, the right side of history. And you know, I, I think you're right. That time will uh, tell um, where this is all going to end up. And, you know, I just you know, hope that, uh, People address things before it becomes a little too late to address some of them. Yeah, that's the fear. Yeah, too late and too expensive, which goes along with it. Also. Yeah, of course. And then you know you have another argument against it. Well, we can't spend the money on that. You know, we got to do this. Yeah, you know, there there are other priorities certainly. Um, in, infrastructure and many other things have to be taken care of because 
like everything else, they fall apart and, and you yeah. have to maintain them. Uh, but money still has to be set aside to find ways to fund research and to fund um, music and, and sports and arts and everything else, because those are also things that have been proven to assist and stimulate brain growth in children that, and I'm getting you know, a little aside from, from what we were discussing, but, but it all falls into the same category. Children that struggle with academia in school still have the ability to have brain growth and stimulation in other areas. We've seen cases where football players who may be, you know, failing students can memorize a playbook and, and know what every 11 players roles are on any specific play and how they're supposed to move forward. Uh, and you see that over and over again. Um, so, uh, you don't have to worry about any of that. You know, uh, they'll, get, they'll get hit in the head too many times anyway. <laughs> That's a little can of worms. Yeah. Well, then we'll need more research to to help them, you know, on the scientific end, <laughs> regardless. Yeah. Well, Dan, we can't thank you enough for for your time. Um, thank you, Dan. It was, it was very very enlightening. We yeah. wish you uh, the best moving forward with uh, with your studies and with your ability to gain funding to support those studies. Yeah. And uh, and our audience, I'm sure, um, wishes the same. Awesome. Well, All the best yeah. to you, Dan. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you guys for having me. Certainly. All right. Have a great day. Best of luck. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Dan McCallie, grad student, um, postdoc, as uh, he intends to be, and um, gets us into the broader field that we discussed, um, specifically in this case, the nature of uh, substance abuse disorders. Um, interestingly, you know, it's focused on the mind. Um, mm -hmm. Parkinson's, as we know, affects the mind and body through the mind, yes. um, as all neurological things are, why they're called neurological, starting yeah. with the mind, MS uh, being one as well. Um, as easily as it seems that we can shut off that craving um, through a couple of things that Dan said, you do have to understand there's a physical addiction that goes beyond that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that battle of the mind sometimes does not have control and that's why we you know this is not a solution um, but it's a way to study how it affects people's minds so hopefully things in the mind can trigger some of those body cravings and desires not just a mental craving and desire yeah so i mean it's it's just a it's just a very difficult ongoing battle on all sides um the 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 addict is saying I don't want this, you know, or knows he shouldn't be taking this, but yet he he's craving it, um, and it's just um, I mean, I feel their pain, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, um, with, with some of my meds and things like that, I'm not, I'm not putting on their level as far as um, an addiction, but um, I, I need my medicine, right? And I'm not feeling well, and I know that will put me back in in place. And, um, you know, again, that, that's a little different than, um, than an addict needing a narcotic, but, um, but there's a lot of similarities too. I mean, um, I find, uh, it's just a, just a very difficult battle. Like, like, um, when, um, trying to, uh, to, to do the right thing at times, you just, you just know it's, you know, your mind just goes a different direction. Hmm. Yeah, funny how the mind works. Um, mind goes back and grabs uh, 
points but that I heard there are mixed connections to some previous things that we heard and that's in our uh, our never-ending effort for corporate funding that we're we're jokingly going through here. Yeah, we've mentioned before uh, Coca-Cola and Nabisco, who were referred to uh, some of their material um, by our expert uh, guest, who had nothing to do with those companies. <laughs> um, Dan today chose to bring Seven Eleven. Uh, yeah, I thought that was. Very, I knew you would pick up on that. <laughs> So, 7-Eleven, uh, Southland Corp, we're reaching out to you as well, um, especially if we, we want an, a, a Parkinson's Donut or something to be uh, <laughs> Parkinson's Donut of the Week, perhaps. <laughs> so, let us know. We'll, sh we'll help you uh, out with what's shaking. Um, so, Dan started almost by accident, he mentioned, um, reminded me of how Dr. Cook had started yes. kind of by accident, went yes. into other fields and gradually into a... Um, your yeah, mind, yeah, and neurological. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Cook was a good interview. Yeah, through, I enjoyed through that. Through an alternate experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't have much else other than you know, grants, addiction. Okay. Um, How much time have I shot this? Use up. It's, we're, we're in the length of our normal episodes. Oh, okay. That's okay. So, yeah, 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 okay. Um, uh, yeah, just get into a wrap, I think. We're, okay. Um, so, whether it's um, studying brain functions, um, transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation in this case, um, mm -hmm. deep brain stimulation as right. you've undergone, um, there are ways that science is looking at the mind today that are are unique that are advanced from advancing rapidly yes. uh, from where things used to Certainly, be. Certainly, yeah, yeah. The technology will will help us and bring us some answers. I have always wanted to fight against technology. Yeah, you you <laughs> fight it for years and knew you weren't going to win that fight. Technology, I'm giving it. <laughs> you know, technology is the way to go. I mean, I'm not a tech guy as you well know, but um, I understand the importance of it. I know sure. you you do too. Sure. I mean, it's just um, something that's. Um, we got to keep it going. We got to keep it going. Um, I was reading an article today in um, the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know, a little, mm -hmm. little bit for that there. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, and it was about in Germany during World War II, there was a gay Jewish scientist that Hitler knew not to mess with. Wow. Because he was doing some important things. Wow. And um, then he had a partner, and the partner had a free pass too. Hmm. And, interesting, and it's a very interesting article. It's, yeah. it's, it's again. I have the inquire here. I'll have to look for it. Yeah, you'll you'll enjoy that article. Yeah, you will. Being a former Nazi, no, um, <laughs> yeah, no seriousness, you, you would enjoy it. Yeah, interesting that uh, that Hitler would have that perspective. Um, you know, sometimes we we've seen people just turn a blind eye to what can help them only because of their own prejudices and yes. and. Um, not be willing to look at what other people have to contribute. So well, that, not, that's amazing. Not to talk too much about Hitler, not my favorite person, but um, <laughs> yeah, he he was looking a lot in the science. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was very sure. into that. He he sure. was trying all kind of experiments with Melenghi or, or and a lot of other um, scientists. Mengel. Just, Mengel. Mengel. Yeah. I, I was it. I couldn't think Mengel of the name. Yeah. Figure if I said it quick enough, you would pass <laughs> on it. Cause I knew you knew it. But um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, he was very into science. Um, because he wanted to make the master race, mm -hmm. and that was his plan. Mm -hmm. Everyone be blonde hair, blue eyes, and yeah. um, go out in there. You're six foot two. You're you're two twenty five, and you can do it all. Yeah, as long as you speak German. Ah, that's <laughs> right. 
All right, kind of went a little off target there, um, but it's uh, yeah, been a fascinating episode. Thank you, and I keep checking out what's shaking. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a great day. This has been the What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please check us out on Facebook at What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. You can also email us at What's Shaking Podcast at protonmail.com.